scripture reading this morning is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The word of the Lord. Well, thank you for the prayers, Lori. Cindy and I are um, on a plane tomorrow morning to Pensacola, Florida. Our uh, oldest son, Luke, his wife, Leah, are having a a child, a baby, a girl they already know. Her name's Josie. Tuesday uh, by cesarean section, so they know it's Tuesday. Uh, So we're going to be there to take care of her uh, older brother, Clay, who's three. Uh, So uh, thank you for your prayers, Lori, for that journey, that time with with them. Uh, Looking forward to that. So some of you know that I've spent time in the Navy through the years as a chaplain and uh, shipboard chaplain. One of the the cardinal sins of serving in the Navy is to not be aboard your ship when it pulls out of port. (laughs) The Navy, as you might imagine, is probably the worst place to be late for work. (laughs) They leave without you. It's called missing ships movement. You don't want to do that, ever. 
the motto in the Navy is always 10 minutes early is on time. And if your ship's going out, you better be there before that even. But can you imagine driving down to the ship basin on that day that you're to pull out and start dropping the kids off at school, swinging by and getting a cup of coffee, sea bag in the back seat, pulling into the base, looking down across the pier and seeing your ship with three of its lines out in, out in the basin there, being pushed around by the tugboat, getting ready to head out the channel, out to sea. Ship is moving. You're not on it. Don't do that. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> there were days I lived with that fear. Not anymore. <laughs> but I do fear missing the metaphorical ships of life. I, miss, I, I fear missing that ship of God's own meaning and purpose. Thinking, is there something more that maybe I'm missing? I fear being on the wrong ship sometimes. And that's very real, that fear. It's biblical, in fact. The text Chris read for us today is a description of a, a man, a Description is given to us, a rich young man. Uh, Luke even adds that he's some kind of a, a ruler of elite class. But he's running. This is a running man because he's burning with a question. You heard the question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the question, right? What can make this last forever? How can we go on with you forever, God? That's a question worth running with. Like a sailor speeding to the pier, this man doesn't want to miss out on, on all of this. And so there's the desire, there is this fear that he appears to want to check all the boxes. Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. List some of them out for him. Got those. Known him since I was a young boy. Kept them all. What else you got? He seems to be wanting to ask. He doesn't want to miss anything. He has that gleam in his eye. He's going to get it all figured out. He's going to talk here to the rabbi who, who seems to have the ear of the people. Who spoke so often about the kingdom of God. He must know. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't want to miss that. Is that a fear you carry? That there is something more that you perhaps have left undone or, or simply overlooked, didn't know about when it comes to your relationship with God. Remember Augustine's famous line all those years ago, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, my heart is restless until it rests in thee. And so we just run. We, we want that rest in our God. So we find ourselves running instead of resting. What John Ortberg wrote recently saying that we may think that we are missing the life I was appointed by God to live. 
ever have that fear of just missing something? That spiritual quest spills into the rest of our lives. Have I done enough? Am I enough? Maybe we even read all those obituaries in the Tribune, and I did that this morning. And, and I, I you know, kind of quietly begin to appraise them, appraise myself, and compare, and kind of wonder, what will my write-up look like? I should have gone to the U. Yeah, they beat, beat Washington. <laughs> Why did I go to some little school nobody's ever even heard of? Although they won yesterday, too. <laughs> Whitworth. <laughs> Probably should have worked harder. You know, stuck it out, played college ball. Right? That would have looked good in there. Why didn't I complete that doctorate? Almost. Not quite. So many ships sailed without me. read about an interview with NPR that uh, Paul McCartney, the Beatle, did a few years back. McCartney said, it seems to me that no matter how famous you are, no matter how accomplished or how many awards you get, you always still, you're always still thinking that somebody out there is better than you. <laughs> Paul McCartney, <laughs> can you imagine? How, how's a guy like me? survive, and maybe you, thinking that he missed his ship. How can it be that this rich young man, this running man, winds up thinking that he's missed out on something? Fear, I think, is perhaps one of the main fears that we live with. It's this apprehension that others might be having a rewarding experience from which we are absent or that we are distracted by our fear and we're missing out on what God has for us. So he runs up to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? A throwaway phrase by Mark, Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's the only time in the Gospel of Mark where we're told that Jesus loved somebody, and he loved this man, this running man, this rich young ruler. This is the part of the story I think that's often overlooked with that other line, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. You know, we, we latch onto that pretty quick, but we forget that he loved this man. Maybe he knew that what he was about to ask him was going to be the ultimate question that he would ask of this man and that he would need the underpinning of God's love in order to fulfill it. But Jesus loved this, this kingdom builder, this ruler, this up-and-comer, this go-getter, this perfectionist, this wealthy man. And it seems maybe to dispel all those arguments about, well, can a rich person really have a place in the Church of Christ? Doesn't their wealth disqualify them from really understanding who Jesus is? Jesus loves this man. He loves us even in our anxiety, our 
perhaps our guilt-ridden quest (laughs) to be better, to know more, to do more, to be more. It seems like contentment in life really begins here with that one little line that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Where do you get your contentment? One more thing? Or in the love of God? With this understanding that God sees you fully, knows your life, what concerns you, what's on your heart. God values you. We need to start there. When we begin to think about our satisfaction, our contentment in life, Jesus said in another place in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't reap or sow or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? It's value. Jesus sees the man and loves him. And when the fear of missing out rises within us, I think that's at least part of the key to recognize how God does value who we are. You know, I thought the sermon at this point would need a good quote to sort of underpin its its whole idea of contentment. So I was thinking, well, what what about Martin Luther? You know, didn't he talk about you know, even the, the milkmaid should milk cows to the glory of God, that have that contentment to not be a, kind of running after something else. So I, I Googled it all, and Martin Luther, and his quote pops up. Here's the quote, that next to faith, this is the highest art, to be content with the calling in which God has placed you. To be content with where God has placed you. I thought, yeah, that's it. That's, that's what I needed to find, is these, these right words about contentment. But then, you know how it is on the Internet, when one thing pops up, other stuff starts to pop up, and right below Martin Luther's words pops this. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, I'm trying. I mean, I'm trying to be content, right? Luxury condo in Park City. I mean, give me a, you know, it gets hard, doesn't it? To stay contented? Just this world, I mean, just when I thought I was on the right track, culling away all my fears of, of missing out on something in this life, recognizing that God has us. He sees us, loves us. We don't need anything else. Oh, but maybe a condo in Park City. <laughs> If I just had this, if I just had that. Jesus says, one thing actually, yeah, one thing you actually do lack. <laughs> kind of picking up on the man's quest, his, his running, one thing you lack. And that must have come as good news to a man like this, because he was good at adding stuff on to his life. Just one more thing. I'm, I can do that. Give it to me. What is it? Well, the Greek verb that Jesus used here, that means lack, 
uh, has this meaning behind it more of being late or coming up shorter or failing, missing out. One thing you're, you're missing is what he says to this man. The one thing that has made this young, life, this young man's life a failure and that would keep him behind, that would make him late. One commentator put it like this. He said that there was one distortion in his constellation of values which kept him from realizing the reason he was born. One distortion, one thing you lack. It's the great turn, I think, in this whole text. When this wealthy young man begins to comprehend that there's something truly off in his resume, you know, there's this gap in his well-ordered, full life. You ever have that sense? Got it all. Sure, there's little things, but doing all right. We're on our way. I've got a pastor friend whose uh, wife, she started her own business, and her business is helping people uh, get their homes ready for sale. She's not a realtor, but she's what, a stager. She stages homes. So what she'll do is when you are under contract with her, she'll pull up with a truck and a crew of guys. They'll come in and remove most of your furniture and bring in other furniture that she's got stashed in a storage unit, and they'll reset your house. So it looks a little sparse, but it's got some cool stuff in it that people, when they look at it, they can imagine you know, adding themselves to it and their things. It's not so cluttered with the homeowner's stuff. And so she is a stager, a home stager. My friend, the, the pastor, he talks about his wife. He said that her philosophy was that potential buyers need to envision the house in a different way with their own stuff. And it meant taking things away. So he said that his wife often had a very hard time convincing people that the house just wasn't going to sell with their stuff in it, that it needed to be kind of cleaned and decluttered, if only temporarily. You know, sometimes I wonder if that is sort of the crux of what Jesus is asking of this running man. <laughs> sell everything. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Do we need to restage our hearts, our lives, to take inventory and, and pull that truck up and begin to make some room for what God may want to do in our lives with God's reign, this kingdom of heaven that calls us to kind of reinvest in treasures in heaven? We start thinking about that man, we begin to realize that treasure in heaven it's not really about adding, it's not about addition, but it's about subtraction. It's almost about how we can begin to cull and to take things away that then begin to see the true value by surrendering our lives. Remember Paul, this great Pharisee, Pharisee among Pharisees, you know, he, the top, he, he, he was it. But he comes to Christ and he realizes that all of that stuff that had been a part of his being, of his makeup, well, he called it garbage. He says this, 
in Philippians chapter 3, he said the very credentials these people are waving around as something special I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Subtraction. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master, firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. Restaging. The text goes on in Mark of what happened to this man when he heard this call in his life. Mark says that his face fell and he went away sad because his wealth was great. Now, I think that's just great writing. Can't you see that? Paints a picture for us. I wonder, can, can you make your face fall? Let's, let's see it. Yeah, that's one sad-looking church. <laughs> and that's the end of the story, really, with the rich young ruler. That's the end of his story with Jesus. He kind of goes away with that fallen face. All right, I can't really take it much longer, so go ahead and lift your faces. <laughs> a true facelift. It's a tough lesson to consider what Jesus means for us here. And obviously the, the disciples who are witnessing this encounter were also wondering, what does this mean? Will riches keep us out of the kingdom of God? They must have thought so. This man must have thought so. Must have been a disqualifier from believing that he would have no part in what God was doing. Is it really impossible, the disciples must have thought? A few years later, in the second century, Clement of Alexandria insisted that with self-control and with moderation, this, the rich could walk with God beginning to kind of think that maybe there's a way. By the 4th century, Chrysostom argued that there's an art to using wealth for God's purposes, suggesting that the rich have a place and a calling in God's kingdom, but beginning to try to, try to see a way for those with wealth to, to come into the kingdom of God. It's not easy, Jesus says. And after 2,000 years, the church is still trying to, to wrestle with this. Left to our own devices, we'd surely fail. But Jesus says it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. What is the impossible? To enter the kingdom of heaven? Or perhaps it has more to do with caring and sharing with others, with giving, to give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus says, like threading a needle, threading a camel through the eye of a needle. I think that's supposed to make our faces rise. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be a chuckle, at least. Hyperbole, an exaggeration to make a point. Most think so. 
Some have gone, they want to try to take it more literally and think, well, no, you know, see, there was a gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. And a camel was trying to kneel down and, and get under and up and through. I don't think so. I think he meant to raise our faces, to smile a little bit about the impossibility of it all. A big hump of a camel through a little thread, you know, thread of needle? Impossible. Can't even happen. It's so far out there, you can't even imagine it. I think that's good for us to think that way about our, our resources, our wealth, and thinking, wow, this is hard. Jesus does get where I live. He does understand that it's, it's hard to, to give all the time. In the Old Testament, they, they made plans, a strategy for how to share their lives. I was reading Leviticus. There's a, a verse there in nine, chapter 19 that says, When you harvest, do not harvest all the way to the edge of your field, but leave like a, a, a corridor on the edge of your field so that the poor can come in and glean, uh, that they can participate. They plan for it. Or with your fruit trees, leave some fruit on the trees for the poor that would need that. To have a strategy to care for the poor. Proverbs talked about speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor. You with, with privilege and places of honor, speak for the poor. Make a plan for that, a strategy. I think Jesus raises the stakes for us here. What it would mean to come and to follow him, that it was not going to be easy. And so this rich young man, he becomes a cautionary tale for us. This would mean living differently, with a new set of values, a heart-wrenching, tough reversal to opt out of a system of privilege and, and pride and to find ways to subtract rather than to add in order to find contentment. Treasure in heaven would mean having compassion. It would mean redesigning, restaging to ensure that wealth does not become an insulating force, that it does indeed help those who are in need. Peter, of course it's Peter, he weighs in as he begins to understand what Jesus means, always the one to speak first and to blurt out. He's thinking about things when he hears all this, and he goes, well, we've left everything to follow you. Are we going to be okay? Always kind of thinking about himself. And for him and for us, Jesus seems to speak, and he, he speaks of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, in this very new way that was going to be so difficult impossible for human beings. And he says there's a new order. He says, well, it's going to be like this, you see. The kingdom of God is for people who, well, the, the first are going to be last now. Okay, we got that? That's, that's, that's not easy because a lot of us live in this first world, right? And, and the, the, the last are, are going to be first on their faces must have fallen 
great reversal. The inverted kingdom of God that calls us into a whole different place. And so the great fear of missing something in our lives, it turns out it's not something else that we need to add on, but it's something we have to give away, and sometimes that's even our priority. To see others, to to care for others, to make a plan to provide for others. Jesus, as someone has said, calls for a race to the bottom. Not only a race I want to be in. It's a new order of things that not many are interested in. And I wonder if he's kind of talking about himself and what's going to happen. He's moving towards the cross. Paul wrote about that later. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. How would we ever understand what he does for us unless we too move from places of richness into places of poorness? Abraham Heschel, a Jewish theologian last century, he he made this really wise comment, I thought, about the woes of the world, about the poor of the world. He said, few are guilty, but all are responsible. Few are guilty, but all are responsible. I don't want to miss this ship's movement into the realm of the impossible, these places where only God can really do this sort of thing. I don't want to miss having this kind of purpose in my life. I don't want to miss going into that new way of living where his great love for us reverses our very values and restages our life that we truly understand what God is about and what treasures in heaven might mean. I don't want to miss having my heart inverted. To know what it might mean for the first to be last. Can I be last ever? Perhaps the most important line in this text today is, all things are possible with God. Jesus is hopeful for us, isn't he? That we can make this dramatic change, this shift to, to in what we hold as our greatest value. He is so hopeful about us, hopeful that we can be unbound from the strong pull and the attachments of this world, the, 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 the condo. <laughs> that we can be freed of that pull and discover true courage to follow Christ into the newness of life, into a place where things are shifted and inverted. The first will be last. The last will be first. The way of Jesus. The one who, for our sakes, left behind his riches and became poor, that through him and in him, we who our poor can be made rich. Don't want to miss that ship. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gentle reminder that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. 
God, make us willing to give, to sacrifice, to follow your lead, to go from riches into poorness, that we might truly understand the kingdom of God, and that we might build up for ourselves treasures in heaven through simply by following you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand.